Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show, where you will learn how to deconstruct Discord, the rewards of effective communication. My first guest is Amy Herman. She is the founder and president of The Art of Perception, Inc., a New York-based organization that conducts professional development courses for leaders around the world, from secret service agents to prison wardens, an art historian and an attorney, Herman holds a BA in International Affairs from Lafayette College and a JD from the National Law Center at George Washington University and an MA in Art History from Hunter College. She is the author of Fixed, How to Perfect the Fine Art of Problem Solving. Amy, I'm so excited to talk with you. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. I'm really thrilled to be here. Me too, because around here, we solve a lot of problems. When I'm not doing this show, that's what I'm in, the the, the mental health problem solving business. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so and it's a big one. <laughs> it's a big one. Let's talk about sort of the the structure of solving a problem. Well, first of all, we have to think about we don't really think about our daily lives as, you know, a set of problems. Nobody wants to look at their life as a set of problems. But one of the reasons I wrote the book that I did and I I thought about problem solving is my publisher said to me, why are all these different people coming to you? What's the common thread? And I realized that everybody has a problem to solve. And this was before the pandemic. We all have problems. We all want to be better, but we all have these hurdles that we need to get over. And so I wanted to think of an innovative way. And because I, my work is about looking at art and thinking about different ways to look at art, I said, let's structure looking at art and specifically the artist's creative process to help people solve their problems. I love this. And as being an undergraduate in architecture, mm-hmm. <laughs> I look at problems maybe in a similar way. Absolutely. You do, because architecture is about building and creating and trying to solve problems with the creative process. Somebody needs to build something and you need to help them overcome all kinds of problems, logistical, artistic, you know, pragmatic. And you do that through the creative process. So why can't everybody use that same kind of innovation? I agree. And in part of the creative process that people don't often understand or embrace is the discipline required within it. Yes. Well, one of the things that I wanted to bake into my book and into the process, we all have enough on our plates. We all know that, especially now coming out of this pandemic. I didn't want to add to people's plates. So I wanted to give them a very simple sort of paradigm for everything from like minor annoyances to these intractable dilemmas. How can we break it down into digestible pieces and think about solving the problem? 
And I look to the artist, the three simple things that an artist has to do every time. You have to prep, you have to draft with the goal of exhibiting, being finished with your work of art. And that's how I present to my readers and the participants in my program how to look at their problems. That is sweet. Sweet, tight, and to the point. (laughs) (laughs) That's, you know what, we all need that sweet, tight, and to the point. We do. Uh, Talk a little bit about our relationship that ideally we should have with our problems because we tend to view them as drudgery, right? It's a a pain in the neck. It's disrupting the flow of all the other things we think we had in mind that should take priority. And yet without problems, life would be pretty boring. It would be. And I believe that our problems bring out our inner procrastinator. Would you agree? We all procrastinate from the little things that we know we have to take the recycling out because it's, you know, overflowing to what am I going to do about my, you know, my child's non-interest in school? I mean, just, I'm just thinking of all kinds of everyday problems that we all face that we don't necessarily want to discuss. So thinking about putting your problems into these digestible pieces, I mean, we all know how good it feels when you solve something or even you, you make a dent in solving it and say, you know what, I, I made some headway today. Even if you just prep to solve the problem, you know, the way the artist gathers materials and decides what materials are needed and what are the dimensions of the work of art. You've taken an affirmative step to solving your problem. And even though you haven't gotten there, you've made some progress. And I, I believe those small steps are absolutely necessary because when we're faced with some behemoth, like a pandemic, you can't solve all your problems at once. It takes weeks or months and we have to be able to take baby steps. What about the aesthetic process of art relates to the artful process of problem solving? Well, one of the things that I tell my, I hope I tell my readers and I tell my participants is that this is not about what we like and don't like. It really doesn't, I hate to sound so harsh about this. I don't care if people like the works of art that we're looking at. I want to know if it resonates with them. Because sometimes things resonate with us and we don't have a good feeling about them, but it still forces us to address them. And that's the thing about problems. Nobody wants to, oh, let's dive into a problem that sounds like so much fun. (laughs) Nobody wants to do that. But when we look at art and we learn to handle things that we don't necessarily like or don't evoke particularly positive feelings, it's empowering. So let's look at disturbing art. Let's look at something when people say, well, I don't get contemporary art. I'm not asking you to get it. I'm just asking you to look at it. Same thing with a problem. I'm not asking you to solve it immediately. Let's just look at it and figure out the parameters and take it one step at a time. So the aesthetics, while they they draw us in or they repel us, they're really not substantively considered when I'm looking at the creative process to solve problems. This is a great, uh, a great explanation. And I'm thinking at the moment, what popped into my mind were Quentin Tarantino movies Mm -hmm. for me personally, although I think they're brilliant, they're very hard to watch They are, and it doesn't take away from him as the artist you know, from the quality of his work, even though I find it hard to watch. And I might actually have to close my eyes or turn my head at points. Yes, I call it the watching a movie through your fingers. (laughs) And you and you watch a movie through your fingers and you come out of there and you're at first you breathe a sigh of relief. I got through it. And then you start to think about the artistic merit. And I look at it this way, Lisa, when something pushes you to the brink of, you know, your emotional limits, that's empowering. You know, you can go there and you can come back and you're going to be okay. Not that looking at a movie should really 
test your stamina. But sometimes I think that art does push us to the limits because that's how we realize our own creativity and it's empowering. I take people into museums who have never been there before and they're scared and they're angry. I don't want to be here. I didn't study art. You know, this is not my chosen profession. But when I show them that what they see matters and that art can help them communicate things that up to that point they didn't even know how to approach, sometimes the good and the bad and the ugly comes out and it really is empowering. There is a film, and I think I'm probably going to not get the title right, but I was having a conversation with my parents the other day, and they said, we saw this fabulous film. I think it was called Words and Images or Words and Pictures. Mm-hmm. Have you, have you no. seen or do you know of the film? I do not, no. It is, it's a fairly uh, new film, and it's about mm-hmm. um, two professors, and each one of them is, one is a professor of art, visual art, and the other is a writer. And it's about... I have heard of this. Yes. Yes. Now yeah. that you're describing it. Yes. Yes. And this is kind of like what we're talking about, right? Like that we each have this language, you know, mm-hmm. and I think this is where mm-hmm. we um, fail to see often that we actually are the artist. We are. That is true. Each one and, of us. Know, yes. And, you know, I've changed my mind about something, you know, we talk about conversation stoppers in my program. Like, how are you? <laughs> Do you really care? <laughs> you know, and people say, oh, fine. And that's the end. Or, you know, um, how was your day? Ask specific questions. And I think when we look at art, instead of saying, Do you like this? I say, Well, what do you see here? And it opens up a whole dialogue because I'll say, Well, I see something completely different. I would have never seen that if you hadn't pointed out to me. And what's empowering about that is it's not threatening. And so when we're trying to solve problems, we want to encourage people to to bring up solutions, even if they they might not be feasible. But for someone to say, oh, I would have never thought of that. Let's try a version of this. And so looking at things together and being able to articulate what we see, we just don't do enough of it. And I want to get rid of those conversation stoppers and open up our conversations. Like when my son was growing up, I would say to him, tell me one thing today that caught your attention. Yep. Like what, what made you turn your head today instead of how was your trip home from school, honey? You know, and, and he would know. And sometimes he'd say, mom, I don't want to do this. But sometimes he would tell me something. We live in New York city that caught his attention. It was just amazing. That was really, really uh, eye catching. And it made an impression on him and having to articulate that to me um, really made it indelible for him and for me. And it adds to our ability to tell stories, both related to art and not. And relationship, you know, that at the end of the day, you know, the art of problem solving or the art of communication is about really relationship building, right? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And I find that when I put a group of people together who, let's say they work in the military, they work in a hospital, and I put them in front of a work of art together, they're, they're team members in the hospital, but then they have to discuss something that they've never seen before, and they're all at ground zero, it just builds a whole other side to their relationship. They can laugh together. They can look at something and there's nothing threatening about it. And it, it really, without them knowing it, develops a whole other side, a whole other facet to their relationship. So when they're back in the hospital and they're having difficulty resolving something, they can think back to when they looked at that work of art and say, you know, we disagreed about that. But let's figure out how we came to a middle. Ground. It's, it's like going in sideways. Right. Like instead of approaching the problem head on, you go in sideways in this creative, maybe sneaky way. I mean, it's, you know, honestly sneaky. You know, I don't think it's dishonestly sneaky. (laughs) 
Right. No, I agree with you. I agree with you. I want to correct myself. The film is Words and Pictures, and it's from mm-hmm. 2013. So leave it to my parents to tell me, oh, yeah, it just came out. Just <laughs> <laughs> a new movie. But I do remember reading about it. It shows you time is compressed when a pandemic, you think things were yesterday. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, when our parents age, you know, we love them dearly, but time definitely is distorted. So in this case... Bob and Karen were a little delayed. (laughs) It's okay, but we still got to hear about the movie. Exactly. And what I enjoyed most about them sharing about this film, which I hadn't known about, was their perception. You know, really, it, it circles back to this conversation that we are having. And that's the bottom line. And people's perceptions, that really doesn't get old. No. Let's take a break. And when we come back, we will continue the conversation with my guest today, Amy E. Herman. She is the author of Fixed. How to Perfect the Fine Art of Problem Solving. She's also the president and founder of The Art of Perception, Inc. To learn more, go to artfulperception.com. On Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, you can find Amy at Amy Herman, A-O-P. Here comes the pause. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Before we pause, let's talk about the definition of professional these days. On LinkedIn, important conversations are happening around what it means to be a professional. Right now, LinkedIn members are talking about priorities like flexibility around where we work, when we work, how we work, and even taking time to step away from work to take care of our mental health and family's well-being. Because life matters, and this is not a dress rehearsal. And the thing that matters most should not stunt our career development and growth. In fact, our experiences add value and impact how we show up for work and life. LinkedIn members are putting what matters most to them in their titles with things like podcast host slash activist slash mom. I'm going to update my profile to say podcast host slash positive psychology expert slash servant leader slash optimal lifestyle management consultant slash lover of life slash mom. Professional is ours to define and our authentic self is our best professional self. So if your LinkedIn doesn't reflect who you really are, Update your job title and let the world see the real and valuable you. And join the conversations redefining professional on LinkedIn. LinkedIn, welcome professional. Now let's take that pause. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. We're back continuing the conversation with Amy Herman. We're talking about deconstructing discord, the rewards of effective communication. So, Amy, we talked about how art relates to problem solving and the creative process can help us in our day to day lives solve problems big and small. But I want to turn to a couple of cool stories because you've worked with a variety of clients and I'm really interested in the problem solving process with the secret service mm-hmm. and a prison warden and mm-hmm. any other, you know, juicy story that you'd be willing to share without having to kill any one of us. Sure. Sure. Um, yeah, I'd be happy to share a story. And some of them, you know, when I tell people some of the groups that I work with, you know, highly sensitive Uh, in the intelligence community and in the military. But the problems are like everybody else. You know, we do have similar 
issues to deal with. And I'll give you one that I was thinking about recently. One of my military groups, they have boots on the ground. And what their job is, is to go into a certain country and befriend or, you know, form alliances on the ground as they're trying to help the community. And, you know, they they found it was difficult to communicate. It was a very rural population and they found it difficult to communicate. And, And people were running from these American military, not out of fear, but they couldn't figure out what the problem was. And do you know what it came down to? Something as simple as sunglasses. And this is how they found out. They said, you know, why is it that the local women in this village won't speak to us? And someone said, well, you know that this local population doesn't make eye contact with men. Well, if you're wearing sunglasses, they have no idea if you're looking at them and they will not have a conversation with you. Something as simple as sunglasses. And if you take your sunglasses off and they see they're not looking at you, then they will have a conversation with you. Wow. So the idea of looking at our cultural landscapes differently, you know, and it's not always these big issues, these, you know, fearful military issues. Sometimes it's as simple as sunglasses. How do we solve the problem of people not wanting to talk to us? What is the source of the fear? And when they finally were able to articulate the question, why are people not talking to us and running away? And then they explained about the eye contact. It all came down to sunglasses fascinating. Yeah, it really is. So so problem solving doesn't have to be this albatross around your neck. Sometimes we have to look at the big picture and the small details and say, well, what's really stymieing here? What is the problem? It's not, I can't communicate with the whole village. Why are people running away from me? And it's really breaking down the problem into how you observe and how you perceive in small digestible pieces. Fabulous. Okay. Now we've got boots on the ground. Take us to the secret service. Well, interesting about the Secret Service, there's something called protective intelligence. And protective intelligence means that you are, your assignment is to protect a certain person. You know, all our dignitaries that come to come to a major city or someone is visiting the president or there's someone speaking at the UN, you are charged with protective intelligence. And one of my agents once said to me, I've never been able to think about the big picture and small details. You're your way of having me look at art made me think about the big picture. The big picture is protecting the person that I am charged to protect. He said, but there are so many small details. What's the weather? How many people are hiding behind scarves and coats? Uh, How many people are out on the street? I mean, to think about something like the weather when you're protecting somebody, are they going to want to walk on the street or do they want to be in a heated car? How many people are going to gather in a crowd? And he said, you know, one of the small details is I have to look at the weather when I am assigned to protective intelligence. And so big picture. Yep. You have to make sure that this person gets from point A to point B safely. But the small details, he said, I have to be able to articulate them and not just look around and say, yes, is everything safe? Never thought about the weather as it relates nope. to, to security, but it makes perfect sense, right? And here's another addendum to that. You think about Inauguration Day, you think about protective intelligence when presidents walk down Constitution Avenue. The weather is always going to be a factor because it's January. Yes. It's always going to be a factor. Who can hide a gun under a coat, you see? Mm-hmm. In the summertime, nobody's wearing a coat. It's a whole, no pun intended, it's a whole different layer of protection here because you have to factor in the weather to your, when I analogize this to art, to drafting 
how you're going to solve the problem, how you're going to protect this person, you have to take the weather into consideration. And you have to think about snow and you have to think about blinding sun, crisp, cold sun. We know it's always going to be cold in January in Washington. And those are the kind of details that I want to bring to the fore because they have a substantive and substantial effect on how you can do your job. Even the sun patterns, right? At what time of day is the sun at its peak where it can cause that glare? And where do I need to position people in order to overcome that barrier? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Fascinating. So that's how we look at it. And now if we go to the art model, right? When you're setting up your work of art, whether it's a a painting, a drawing, a sculpture, you are taking all of that into account in the design of that piece of work. That is correct. That is correct. So I don't, only want, I don't only want to hear what they see, but did you notice what's missing? Did you notice what you weren't? It, what happened in the corner? Did you notice that there was a shadow over here? And so when I talk about looking at the big picture and the small details, it's not just what you see, but what did you miss? I love this. And I love the idea of teaching people to see in this way and, and how it can effectively help problem solve. That's right. And that's I'm constantly working on it because we live in such a highly changeable, dynamic world that the problems are always changing. But let's have a solid template for that solution. This is great. Okay, now off to prison. Prison wardens. Okay, prison wardens. Prison wardens have all sorts of things to think about. And they many of them work with prison psychologists because you're talking about a mindset of someone who's been incarcerated, who has been out of the general public, sometimes for decades at a time. And what we take for granted in terms of our interaction, social media, seeing people, talking on the phone, the incarcerated person doesn't have that. So now we think about problems of communication. How do we communicate effectively, understanding that the person with whom you need to communicate does not have access to the same resources that you do? And this changes when we're talking about solitary confinement. It changes when we talk about changing prisons from one prison, transferring prisoners from one prison to another. You know, I recently saw a prisoner. I was sitting in the airport. And when we talk about the pertinent negative, what is it that we're not noticing? One of the terms that I use. And I looked around at the at the gate. Everyone was on their phones except one person. And I noticed it. And I thought, why is that person not on a phone? You know why? Because their hands were shackled. Their hands were shackled behind their back, and all of a sudden it dawned on me, they're transporting a prisoner. But my question was, look at all these people at the gate. They were all so absorbed in their phones. No one bothered to look. And you know, when, you, when you're not aware of your situation, it can compromise your safety. It, nobody's safety was compromised. There were federal wardens transporting right. this prisoner. But did anybody even notice that there was one man at the gate who wasn't on a phone because his hands were shackled behind him. That's what I mean by looking around, thinking about your situational awareness. And when we look at art together, we're going to become more attuned to all those details. This is brilliant. And what a way to see the world, right? Where you're engaging all of your senses, you're paying attention, you're outwardly referenced for that period of time because we're so inwardly referenced, right? We're in our own little bubble, doing our own little thing, particularly in the last couple of years where everybody's, you know, really in their bubbles. And now we're coming out. And the idea is we really need to see the world through a different kind of lens in order to navigate this new world in which we are all living. That's right. That's right. And so navigating unfamiliar landscapes is one of the things that I try to teach uh, my participants, my readers to do, because I'm not always going to be standing there with them. But what I hope in this book and the idea of 
creating this template is when they when they encounter some kind of problem, whether it's as huge as a pandemic or, you know, how do I go to my Zoom meeting and make sure that my kid gets to school, that we're able to pick it apart into the pieces the way the artist has had to pick all the problems apart to create that work of art. And as I said, I don't want to add to people's plate. I want to give them a usable, sustainable template that that you can use for problems large and small. We're nearly out of time. Before we go, I would love for you to challenge our listeners to a test drive. You know, one of those, please do try this at home. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. here's my challenge for the listeners. And I'm going to use a quote from Henry James. He said, try to be the person on whom nothing is lost. What I want listeners to do and readers of my book to do is every single day, we all do the same things from every day, go to point from point A to point B. I want you to notice one thing every day that you didn't notice the day before and either tell it to a family member, write it in a journal, make a note of it to yourself. Because if you do that every day, you will train your brain to start being a little bit more elastic and noticing a new thing every day without even trying. And that's how we can aspire to be the person on whom nothing is lost. Amy E. Herman, thank you so much. This has been such a wonderful conversation. I've enjoyed every minute. So have I. So have I. So much fun. So much fun. The book we're speaking about is Fixed, How to Perfect the Fine Art of Problem Solving. To connect with Amy Herman, please do so at artfulperception.com. On Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, you will find her at Amy Herman. A-O-P. Here comes the pause. We'll be right back. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. We're back, continuing the conversation about deconstructing discord, the rewards of effective communication. My next guest is Professor Ed Tronick, who is a developmental and clinical psychologist. He co-founded the Child Development Unit at Boston Children's Hospital and the Touch Points Program with T. Barry Brazelton. He is currently a university distinguished professor of psychology at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, a research associate in newborn medicine at Harvard Medical School, and director of the Infant Parent Mental Health Fellowship Program at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. He is the co-author of The Power of Discord, Why the Ups and Downs of Relationships Are the Secret to Building Intimacy, resilience, and trust. And that has been co-authored with Claudia M. Gold, MD. Dr. Ed Tronick, thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you. I'm really uh, pleased to be here. Oh, I am super pleased you're here because I'm often asked questions about discord and the irrational belief that a good relationship means that we don't argue or disagree. I know that sense that things have to be always going smoothly in in its own way undermines what I think are is the real quality of good relationships, which is that they will have discord. And what the most critical factor is, is how well 
you're able to repair and move on from from that discord. Yeah. I grew up in a household where it was completely uncool to disagree with, with my parents. And I'm sure there are many of us out there. And I'm sure if my mother were to listen to this episode, she'd be in horror by what I just said. But it's true. <laughs> well, it's also true that parenting of your own children and how you handle discord is going to be different than how you handle discord when you're in an intimate relationship. So it's not that there's a simple resolution to that kind of issue. But don't we learn, we learn relationship styles from our early relationships. And if we grow up in a household that limits discord or tries to limit or control discord, unless we seek outside support or influences, we're going to probably be the same way, no? Yes and no. Certainly, uh, the the earliest relationships that you have have a very, very powerful influence on you. And the style of that relationship with um, your parents is one that, if you think about it, starts obviously during the newborn period and goes probably until you're 10 or 15. That's 15 years of experience of a particular quality of the relationships. But one thing that happens developmentally is that with development, parents typically shift to some extent their style with with their child, not necessarily for the good, it can be for the bad, but that style changes. So your experience in the relationship changes. And then you have the relationships with your friends growing up, your initial relationships, all of those give you experience that expands the way you can deal with relationships. In fact, I think all of those relationships have their own unique way of operating, how much discord they'll tolerate and how the discord gets resolved. Let's talk about discord resolution, because some of us enjoy a huge range of really good, solid, connected relationships, which we know from the research in positive psychology is one of the top keys to human happiness. Mm -hmm. and, and then on the other hand, there are others who really suffer because forging those kinds of deep, meaningful relationships is challenging. They feel lonely. They're disconnected from themselves and mm -hmm. others. Talk a little bit about that. I think the last thing that you said is, is really critical. And I have to say, I think in the book, um, we really could have spoken, spoken more to this particular issue, which is the resolution of discord within yourself. And that may sound odd, to say something like that. But most of us in many, in many situations in relationships uh, feel very conflicted, have our own internal issues about uh, whatever disagreement we're having with, say, our partner or a really good friend. Um, we're afraid to bring it up because we're afraid of the other feelings that it may bring up for ourselves. So, Gaining a way to repair and cope with 
that your own internal discord, I think, is a really critical first step in then being able to deal with the discord that you may have with another person. So you said something you, you just said that in your family, um, and again, hopefully your mother isn't listening. <laughs> you, 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 you know, you couldn't, um, you couldn't bring out the discord. Probably every family has areas which uh, are very, very difficult to bring up. But you had that kind of experience that somehow the discord was something that was frightening and it was going to be frightening for you. Now you come to a relationship with someone else and you do that past experience really does come up and can really affect how willing you are to engage the discord with, with your partner. You're afraid internally of doing it and you're afraid of how the partner is going to react given the reaction, given your experience, you know, all those years with your parents and probably in, in other relationships. And I think I can speak from my own experience, you know, growing up in a family dynamic like that and how it affected me as the as I grew older, had my own children and and launched my own children out into the world where discord and disagreement was something that was welcome to the conversation because it enriched the intimacy and the bond within the relationship. I think the resolution of discord, being willing, being able to engage the discord and then being yeah. able to repair it is in fact the process by which relationships really get built up on in terms of trust in the other person, in terms of intimacy with the other person, and in terms of really the feeling of connection, and if you will, the feeling of loving another person. That I think if, if people listening think about their most intimate relationships, the relationship, and it may only be one that they feel most feel best about, that they feel is the most solid relationship that they have. My bet is that you'll realize that part of part of that is, or a key component of it, is you're knowing that whatever the kind of discord is you have with that person, and it's likely given that you care so much that you have some major discords with that person, that you can resolve it, that you move on, that the discord doesn't threaten either yourself or the relationship, that you'll be able to overcome. Yeah. I, I agree with you that there is a trust that you feel that you can be vulnerable. I mean, I think that vulnerability plays, the willingness to be vulnerable plays a huge part in this right. as well. Yeah, and, and if you think about the other side of it, when you're afraid to engage the discord, yeah, when your partner is not willing to engage the discord, you've already set up a barrier about something that's, in a sense, in the room, that's in your relationship. It's happening right now, and yet what you're both doing 
is restraining yourself and not not really allowing yourself to connect with that other person. You you've set up a barrier. I wanted to go back to something that you said about the internal discord and how I paraphrase it is the the need to have a reckoning with our own internal discord. And I'd love for you to go back to that for a minute, because oftentimes we want to project the issue, the discord outwards onto the partner, the child, the <laughs> colleague, right? and, you know, not really mind our own business inside. Well, projecting it out onto the other person, making the other person the problem is probably one of our most uh, used and perhaps sometimes most effective, you know, way of dealing with the discord. It, you know, when we say, well, it's not me, it's, yeah. it's, it, it's my friend, it's the person I care about. It's really, they're doing it. But of course, all that does is set up another barrier in relationship with that other person. And if you think about it internally, the issue you might be dealing with is one, uh, it might hark back to your early experience in childhood, or it might be an issue now where you feel conflicted about it. Or maybe it's easier to say you, you feel anxious about bringing it up. And so the anxiety, um, you know, do I want to tell my partner that when she goes off and screams and yells at me that I want to run out of the house and that I don't want to talk to her for a week as opposed to just shutting it down. And there can be a lot of anxiety in that really typical situation. Um, or you have a conflict um, in which your partner really wants you to do something like uh, meet your in-laws or um, – go someplace and it's a place that for whatever reason you really don't want to go to or you're or you're just plain anxious about going there and that internal issue is one where you don't want to face up to your own anxiety and you can't resolve it and it prevents you from bringing it up with your partner where you say you know i'm really it's not saying I don't want to go to see your parents. It's saying I'm really anxious about going to see your parents. And now you're worried, is your partner going to respond in a way that's supportive or is it just going to lead to, uh, to further discord between you? Mm. So what I'm hearing that part of the equation is the creative problem solving, right? Like once we mm -hmm. can really air what's going on and be clean with our own communication and ownership of what we're feeling rather than finger pointing mm -hmm. to the other, that's where the creativity and the collaboration come in, which further builds the connection. Right, exactly. I think the resolving of discord is in fact a creative process in part you use some of the techniques that you've always used, but you also figure out a new way of doing it. You know, so much of my work has been focused on parent, mother, infant, father, infant interactions. And one of the ones where I see a really creative solution is 
a case where a mother and her six-month-old infant are sort of nuzzling each other, and the six-month-old, who weighs about 22 pounds, this really robust little boy, um, is grabbing onto her hair, and he's having a great time. You know, you can just <laughs> picture it. He's I really remember happy. those days. <laughs> yeah, and it's and she's having a great time. But at some point, his holding onto her hair, uh, you know, starts to hurt. So she pulls back. She's going, oh, oh. So she's, you know, it hurts her a little, and she makes a really angry face at him. Yeah. And his, this is a six-month-old. His response is to put his hands, both his arms, in front of his face as if he's going to be hit by her. Yeah. And within half a second, she looks at him and realizes something is really amiss. I don't think she's really aware of the face that she's made, but she changes her behavior and starts to do a little bit of a game, a little bit of a touching game that they normally typically play with each other. And he starts to peek. It's really cute. He starts to peek out at her from between his, his arms in front of his face, but he doesn't look at her for another 30 seconds. Interesting. Finally, they connect up. And what you can think is that this is a really big discord for a six-month-old and a parent. But they have figured they've never done this before. They've never had this discord before. But they figured out a way to overcome it. And that means the next time a big one occurs, which it inevitably will, you know, she'll be driving in the car and she won't respond to him or something like that. They'll have this experience that they can bring to it that will allow them to repair it. And they'll also have the trust that we, in, in adult terms, had a bit of a fight, you know, a real serious little spat with one another. But we figured out how to do it. So I can trust you to overcome the next big one that we have. Let's take a break. And when we come back, we will continue the conversation with Dr. Ed Tronick. We're talking about his book, The Power of Discord, Why the Ups and Downs of Relationships Are the Secret to Building Intimacy, Resilience, and Trust. And that has been co-authored with his colleague, Dr. Claudia M. Gold. To learn more about Ed Tronick and his work, please go to the UMass Boston website and put in his name, Ed Tronic. Here comes the pause. We'll be right back. And that is a guarantee. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book. Are we happy yet? Eight keys to unlocking a joyful life. A boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness is available at Barnes and Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious. And happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. 
we're back, continuing the conversation with my guest today, Professor Ed Tronick. We're talking about deconstructing discord, the rewards of effective communication. Let's get back to it. And Ed, prior to the break, you were talking or telling a story of a a mother and a son, six-month-old little boy, and how they were playing and he grabbed her hair too tight and how her reaction to him made him become very defensive. You know, in his young little Mm -hmm. life, his, his immediate response was to cover his face and protect himself. And it made me think about how tone and attitude in the way that we have discord is so important. It's really critical. If you think about that six month old, he's making meaning out of this angry face that the mother makes. It's not just that he sees her face as being different. He sees it as her being threatening to him. I mean, it takes less than a second. Her facial expression lasts under a second, but he makes meaning out of it. And on the mother's side, think she makes this immediate adjustment to, to overcome it and to try and repair it. But what happens if she saw his defensive reaction as a rejection of her? In a sense, it is a rejection of her, but she didn't see it that way. She saw it as, oh, something's upsetting him and I need to figure out what to do to help him and us overcome it. Well, what happens if in your adult relationships, you make those kinds of, if your attitude is, oh, we can overcome this, I can trust this person, think how much tolerance you can have for how they're reacting to what you're doing. But what if you think that they're being hostile, or they're always angry with you, or They're trying to manipulate you in some kind of way. So the behavior could be the same in both situations, but the attitude is so different. And then your reaction isn't to try and repair it. Your reaction is to be defensive on your own. And now you have two individuals who are feeding off each other and their attitudes are you're being hostile, you're being angry, you're being unfair. I'm right. You're wrong. I mean, how many times do we we find ourselves in those kinds of situations? And probably one of the most critical findings, maybe the most critical finding that I had in the research that I did on mother-infant and father-infant, parent-infant interactions, was the belief, the the hypothesis that we had was that Good relationships were always in sync with one another. They were always contingent. They were smooth. They were kind of like Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, (laughs) you know, dancing together. And what we found when we looked at it using videotape analysis and sort of micro analysis, second by second interactions, was that the mother and the infant, for example, on average, are only in sync with one another about 30% of the time. And the rest of the time, they're mismatching. The baby's looking off to the side, the mother's looking off, baby's smiling, the mother's not, the mother's smiling, the baby isn't, the baby's fussing, the, the mother is moving away from the baby. 
so the largest proportion of time was when they were mismatching with one another. But in the typical interaction, what would happen is within a second or two seconds, they would go from a mismatching state back to a matching state. And they'd be in a matching state for a while, and then they'd be in a mismatching state. So there was this process of repair that was taking place. So the interaction, the quote unquote perfect interaction wasn't perfect. It wasn't like always being in sync. For me, the quote unquote perfect interaction is an interaction in which there is discord, in which there are mismatches, but the mismatches get repaired. And the yeah. repair and the repair builds trust and creativity, just like we were talking about. Well, I think it's there's a, an old adage that a friend or a question a friend asked me. Mm. And I use this in my own practice too. Do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? And mm. most people will say, "Well, geez, I want to be both." Well, but really, <laughs> most of us will choose happiness over being right. Most. Mm -hmm. And the connection that you have with another person, I think, is profoundly a kind of happiness. Um, oh, yes. My friend and colleague, Carol Gilligan, who talks about relationships, I think, in very profound ways, uses the word pleasure, but she uses the word as opposed to just happiness. But what I think pleasure captures, and I think what we're saying about happiness, is that it's a really deep feeling. It's not that you're laughing and, you know, sort of, being gay and Agreed. carrying on. Happiness is it, a light word, a very light right. word. <laughs> um, Content. And we want it, right. There, there's something about the connection that is, um, is really fundamental to how we feel about ourselves, about the integrity that we have, about our, our sense of self and how we care about this other person. Yeah. And, you know, you and I spoke about the myth of perfection, you know, that, that maybe ultimately this comes down to a recognition that as individuals we're imperfect and the people that we love and we're in connection with and relationship with are imperfect. Mm -hmm. And as we accept that, it makes it easier to be in that deeper resonant place. It, it does make it easier, but the acceptance is sort of like one way to think about it is that the acceptance is kind of like, oh, well, they can't do this, but I'm not going to get upset about it all the time. The other possibility is to see that their in sense imperfection in fact, can be an opportunity to find a way to be with that imperfection that allows for something creative to come out of it. Yeah. Um, and maybe an analogy is a little bit the way I think about improvisational music, improvisational jazz, where one of the things that I've only recently learned about it is that there are mistakes 
in the coordination that are going on among, say, the four musicians in a little quartet. But they take the imperfection and they build on it. Yep, I I, I hear you. I get it, and it's almost like the um, the is it kintsukuroi the to repair with gold the Japanese pottery, yes. right? Yes, I was just thinking of that that example as well, and I've only recently learned about that, um, and I wish I had known about it when I wrote when we wrote the book. The idea that the repair show the if if people don't know what it is it's like breaking a vase and then putting it back together but using gold as the glue a glue with gold in it so you actually see the cracks that have been repaired and seeing that um it looks more beautiful yeah for for the repair and i think that's the perfect analogy for what I'm talking about when I say there's the discord and then there's the repair and the repair makes for something new and something special. I agree. I am very enchanted by this subject because I know from relationships in my own life and working with clients that when we can take ourselves to this place, you know, this, this practice Mm -hmm. that we end up with such a, a satisfied feeling of with, with yes. life and relationship. You feel the connection. You feel like you're expanding because you have connected with this other person. And part of them is now part of you. Yeah. You, you've brought yourselves together. And the other thing that you've done, and certainly this happens a lot, in therapy, I, I know it happens in the therapeutic work that I do, is that when you've repaired that one crack with gold, you can go back to it. So when something else happens down the road, be it a month later or a year later or whatever, you can say, remember when we had that fight about going to see your in-laws or my to see in-laws. Your, yeah, I don't want to pick on in-laws that much. I like my in-laws. Um, going to see your in-laws. Uh, remember when we had that fight? And this is what we did. And the, we put this goal together and we worked it out. Yeah. Whatever the solution was then may not be the solution now. But what you do know is that you could deal with it. And that is such a powerful idea that we can deal with the problems that we're facing. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Ed Tronick. Thanks for being with me today. I love this discussion and I love your work and the power of discord, why the ups and downs of relationships are the secret to building intimacy, resilience, and trust. And that sort of nasty, lighthearted word, happiness. <laughs> yes, right. Well, I don't want to create discord by taking away the value of that word, but I know what you're talking about yeah. when you're saying it, that it it's a, a fullness, a wholeness that comes with it. It's not just the laughing and sometimes it's a real sadness, but yeah. it's that feeling that we're together and we're sharing 
this feeling with one another. The book, once again, The Power of Discord, Why the Ups and Downs of Relationships are the Secret to Building Intimacy, Resilience, and Trust, co-authored by my guest today, Dr. Ed Tronick, and his co-author, Dr. Claudia M. Gold. To learn more about Ed and his work, head on over to the UMass Boston website and just type in his name. Ed, such a pleasure. I have enjoyed this visit immensely. So have I. Really, it, it's really been interesting and it's really fun. Yeah, Thank you. Me too. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and on behalf of my guests, Amy Herman and Ed Tronick, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Please go out and rock your day and remember to be kind to one another. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with TogiNet Radio, KBUU Radio Malibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.